just while I was worshipping the Lord this morning, the, the Bible does say in Hebrews chapter 4 that the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and the marrow and is the discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And we read that verse and we sometimes perhaps well, I can only speak for myself, perhaps slightly misinterpret it, that we assume that what it is saying is that the Word of God is a sword. Now, the Bible does say that the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit, and it does talk about the Word of the Lord. Uh, you read in the book of Revelation, particularly coming out of the Lord's mouth like a two-edged sword. But usually, and again, this is not necessarily a hard and fast rule, but often where you read about the word of the Lord being a sword, it is an offensive weapon. Ephesians chapter 6 talks to us about the armor of the Lord and how we are to put the armor of the Lord on, and that is as defense, because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against principalities and powers and spiritual darkness and wickedness in high places. And it is a defensive or an, and an offensive situation. We're dealing with an enemy. And so sometimes we take that and we, we talk about how the Word of God is like a sword and so sometimes the preaching can slice us and dice us. But Hebrews actually says that it is sharper than any two-edged sword. And when the Word of God is a sword, it is a, is a defense weapon against the enemy, but when it's in the house of God, it is more like a scalpel. It gets down into our hearts. And operates. It doesn't chop off arms and legs and heads, but it performs heart surgery. And sometimes it's not easy to tell the difference because if you've ever had any serious surgery, you know that when the anesthetic wears off, there's still a lot of pain. There's bruising, there's stitches or staples and all that stuff. And, and there, there is pain, but it is, it is a different kind of pain. It is pain that is a part of recovering from having something cut out or maybe added that you needed in your body. And so when the Word of God comes, it's designed to be surgical, not to be destructive. And so we need to allow the Word of God to operate on us and to get down into our hearts. Second Kings chapter 5 and verse 1 says, Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and honorable because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. And he was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper, had leprosy. And the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little maid, or a young lady, and she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said unto her mistress, Would God, my Lord, were with the prophet. And she said, My Lord, she's talking about Naaman, the master, were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. In other words, if, if he could get to the man of God, he would be able to have his leprosy healed. And verse 4 says, And one went in and told his Lord, saying, Thus and thus said the maid that is in the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go to, go, and I will send a letter unto the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand pieces of gold and ten changes of raiment. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, now when this letter is come unto thee, behold, I have therewith sent Naaman my servant to thee, that thou mayest recover him of his leprosy. And it came to pass that when the king of Israel had read the letter, 
that he ran or he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man doth send unto me to recover a man of his leprosy? Wherefore consider, I pray you, and seek, see how he seeketh a quarrel against me. The king thought that the king of Syria was trying to start a fight by sending him an impossible request. But his word spread in verse 8, and it was so that when Elisha, the man of God, had heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? Let him come now to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. And so Naaman came with his horses and with his chariot and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go and wash in Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. But Naaman was wroth, or he was furious. And he went away and said, Behold, I thought, I thought, he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? And so he turned and went away in a rage. And his servant came near and spake unto him and said, My father, if the prophet had bid thee do some great thing, wouldest thou not have done it? How much rather then when he saith to thee, Wash and be clean. And then went he down and dipped himself seven times in Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your presence in this place, Lord. We thank you for your word that it can operate on us like nothing else can. So, Lord, I pray this morning, Lord, that you'd anoint me as your vessel. Help me to minister your word, Lord. Open our hearts to receive it. Lord God, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, naming this warrior, he was a general. It says captain of the host. We'd probably consider that somewhere like a general in today's military rankings. A very powerful man, a very prominent man, a very influential man, a man who had the ear of the king, but it was his leprosy that was defining him. Whenever anybody spoke about him and described him, it's hard to imagine that the fact that he was a leper didn't get a mention. And it was that which was part of his identity more than his rank and his position. And we read of how he he went to the prophet, and he had a preconceived idea of how everything was going to take place. He believed that the prophet would come out and wave his hand or make some great proclamation and abracadabra, the leprosy would disappear. But the prophet, we know, didn't even bother to come out and speak to him face to face, but sent a servant out, and Naaman was furious. He was furious. He didn't like being told to do something that didn't make sense to him. He did not like what he was told to do or where he was told to do it. But as we see in the story, one of his servants came and tried to gently speak to his angry master, which was a fearful thing to do. But he came and managed to say, if he'd asked you to perform some great task, would you not have done it? He basically said, what do you have to lose, Naaman? What do you have to lose? And, uh, and so he went somewhat reluctantly but he took the counsel of his servant and he went to the Jordan River and began to obey the instruction of the prophet up and down up and down and after the seventh time that he dipped himself he came up 
The Bible says that his skin was clear, it was clean, and it was like the flesh of a little child or of a baby again. And so with that sort of that story as my platform, if I can, I want to minister this morning about the difference between the sixth and seventh time. The distance, the difference, not the distance, the difference between the sixth and seventh time. Water is significant throughout the scripture and plays a very symbolic role in the Old Testament in the way that it was involved in the deliverance of God's people. Uh, Perhaps the most famous or one of the most famous accounts the Word of God gives us is that of when Noah and his family went into the ark out of obedience to the Lord and they were saved by being obedient to the Lord and those that didn't listen were destroyed by the flood that came upon the earth. Also, those of you that know much of the Old Testament will know that the parting of the Red Sea, the miraculous parting of the Red Sea when Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt provided a way both of escape for God's people but also of destruction for the wicked. Amen. And much in the same parallel as Genesis, the water delivered those that obeyed and destroyed those that did not. And in the New Testament, both of these Old Testament examples are referred to as baptisms or types of baptisms. And this is where you get busy. Daniel, if you'd give me that first reference, please. First Peter chapter 3, verses 20 and 21 says, "...which sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water." It says that they were saved by water. Then it goes on to say that the like figure, or this is an example or a type, of how baptism does also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, it says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant, I don't want you not to realize this, but how all of our fathers were under the cloud, in the Old Testament, and all passed through the sea. And we're all baptized under Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And so the New Testament writer, both Peter and Paul, reach back to those Old Testament uh, experiences and refer to them as baptisms. Now, they didn't refer to them as baptisms in the Old Testament. But he, what he was showing was those things were an example of what baptism would be to the New Testament church. Another example from the Old Testament, just to underline the point a little further, is that the Israelites, when Joshua assumed the leadership from Moses and he led the Jews into the Promised Land, the Israelites crossed the Jordan River in the time of flood miraculously. The waters were parted when the priests carried the Ark of the Covenant and as soon as the priests' feet hit the water, the waters began to bank up on the left and the right and they were able to lead the nation across on a dry riverbed. And I don't want to digress today, but even that was symbolic of a time when the Messiah, when God manifest in the flesh, would stand in that same river as an example and be baptized by John the Baptist and also open a way into the promised land. There's so much of that symbolism in the Old Testament with the New as well. Amen. And you see, since that time, since the New Testament time, over around the last roughly 2,000 years, because there are... Many different beliefs, 
many different opinions, many different groups, many different organisations, many different denominations. There is a huge variety in what is widely called Christianity about the subject of baptism and how they understand what it means, how they understand how it happens and the role it plays in the life of a believer. And what is also interesting is that in when, you, when you examine what some people believe today about baptism, it's changed quite a bit from what their leaders believed in generations beforehand. They've modified things as things have gone along. And uh, I'm, I have no problem with modifying beliefs as long as it's in an effort to become more accurate scripturally. But when we modify our beliefs to become more acceptable socially, we're going the wrong way. We're going the wrong way. Amen. Now, there are two main areas, and some of you have been taught about these subjects for a long time, but don't switch off on me. There are two main areas when it comes to baptism that cause uh, dispute, discussion, disagreement, debate, whatever D word you like. And the first one is the mode or the manner in which baptism is performed, whether it's by immersion or by sprinkling, whether it's in the name of Jesus, whether it's in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, or whether it's in any name. That's, that's the first point of uh, discussion. The second thing that is often debated amongst different areas in Christianity is, is baptism a necessary part of the new birth? Or does baptism play a role in salvation? That's a pretty important question. Or is it a secondary act? Is it something that people do as uh, sometimes people use the expression an outward sign of an inward change? Sometimes they, they describe it as being a, a public statement of their faith and their belief in, God, belief in God. Sometimes it's described as a ceremony that officially makes you a part of the church. There's a lot of different points of view. So let's, let's consider these questions and hopefully by the time we're done we'll understand what the Bible has to say. The first question of the difference between sprinkling and immersion is actually quite an easy one to answer because baptism, the word itself, without getting into theology and Bible study, baptism, baptized and baptized all come from the same Greek word bapto which means to immerse, to dip or to cover with a liquid. Uh, the Greeks used the same word when they were speaking of dyeing a garment or colouring a garment by plunging it into a coloured dye. So if we're going to use the word baptism, it really means to be immersed, to go under. There's, there's not really any way you can take that word and literally interpret the meaning to mean sprinkling. Let me give you some examples so that we support this with Scripture, which is always a good idea. In Mark chapter 1 and verse 10, this is when Jesus was baptized with John the Baptist. It says, and straightway coming up out of the water. Okay? Now, if you are coming up out of the water, that would suggest that just prior to that, you were actually under the water. So that you could come up out of the water. Acts 8, 38 and 39. This is Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. It says, and he commanded the chariot to stand still. And they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water. Now, Philip and the eunuch got together under the direction of the Lord in the desert. Sprinkling would have been a lot more convenient. Pull out your water bottle, do a sprinkle, 
and go on our way. But the eunuch understood enough from what Philip taught, taught him to say, here is water. What hinders me or what is holding me back from being baptized? The eunuch understood from Philip's teaching that baptism involved him getting into the water and going under the water. So that's, that's important to notice that. The practice of sprinkling, and you can study it throughout history if you want to, but when you look at sprinkling in the scripture, sprinkling is usually only ever spoken about when referring to blood. They would sprinkle blood on the altar. In the Old Testament and in 1 Peter 1 and 2, Daniel's doing a great job back there, it says, Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you and peace be multiplied. Now, some people might like to take this verse and to suggest that because we have the sprinkling of the blood and blood's involved in remission of sins, that therefore sprinkling of water is okay. The problem with that approach is that we are never actually literally sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. It is a statement that is speaking symbolically about the power of the blood and its role in the taking away of our sins. Nobody here has ever actually physically seen, touched, or been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. And even if somehow you had the getting the, the physical red sticky stuff is not the issue. The issue is the price that was paid for our sin by the shedding of his blood and the surrendering of his life. Because, as I've taught before, there were people when he was crucified that literally were touched and sprayed and splattered with the blood of Jesus Christ but never had their sins taken away. You think about the Roman soldiers that whipped him, the ones that hammered the nails into his hands and into his feet and drove the crown of thorns into his head. I promise you they got blood on them. His blood. They got his blood on them. But it didn't take away their sins because it's not about the literal blood touching us physically. It's about the fact that that blood was his life source and that when he shed his blood and gave his life, he took our place, took our punishment, paid our debt, and we were able to take advantage of his sacrifice that we might be born again. So the sprinkling argument connected with this scripture, unfortunately, doesn't really stand up. Amen. So what you do see in this statement in First Peter, when it talks about sprinkling the blood of Jesus, is a, a connection back in the Old Testament with the Day of Atonement. When the high priest would go in behind the veil to the Ark of the Covenant once a year and sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat for the nation. That's the connection. Amen. So let me give you some more scripture. Further support of the idea of baptism being by immersion rather than being sprinkled is found in Romans chapter 6 and verse 4. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 12, please, Daniel. Again, buried with him in baptism. The, the, the parallel and the example of burial is that somebody goes under. They go down. When you bury somebody, you put them under. You're not allowed to... Somebody, somebody passes away, you can't just leave them lying around. They have to be buried. You can't put them out on the nature strip when it's that time of the year. They've got to be buried. And there's a reason for that. And it's the same with baptism. We are buried with him by baptism. 
So that, that, that question's not too hard to answer. Biblically accurate baptism involves being immersed in water. That part's not too hard. Now, the baptismal formula, or what is said when people are baptized, it's not a mathematical formula, but the baptismal formula can only be seen actually being practiced in the book of Acts. We know that in the Gospels, John the Baptist, as his name implies, baptized people. But if you look at the scripture, you'll see that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, that it was preparing the way for the coming of the Messiah. John's baptism could not take away sins because there had not yet been a sacrifice. Jesus had not yet gone to the cross, so there was not yet a price that had been paid. So his baptism and his ministry was, prepare ye the way of the Lord and make his path straight. That's what John was, was called of the Lord to do. So that baptism is not the same as the baptism of the book of Acts. And if, if that's confused you, come see me afterwards, but I don't want to spend a lot of time on that. But so when Jesus went to the cross and was buried and rose again, and the church was born in the book of Acts, what we see is the... Let's, let's have some scriptures on the wall, please, Daniel. In Acts chapter 2, the church was born... People were filled with the Holy Ghost for the first time. I was chatting to somebody about this just the other night. And when Peter preached to the crowd and explained what had happened, he explained how Jesus had been crucified and how they were responsible for his crucifixion. And they asked the question, what do we have to do? Peter said in verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission or the forgiveness of sins, and you shall receive the gift of of the Holy Ghost. So the instruction was to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then a few verses later in verse 41, it says, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. It tells me something. That tells me that there were some that didn't gladly receive his word. Some said, I don't believe that. I don't agree with that. That's not our tradition. And they walked away. But they that gladly received the word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Now, Peter's just instructed them how they needed to be baptized. I think it's fairly safe to conclude that they were baptized as he had just instructed, in the name of Jesus. Amen. If we go to chapter 8, Acts chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. Again, a little background. Philip, the young evangelist, has gone down to Samaria. He's preaching the gospel in the city of Samaria. The whole city is turning to, to the Lord. There's great repentance taking place. There's a revival going on. And in verse 12 it says, But when they believed Philip, preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Then Simon himself believed also who was a, a wicked man in the city and when he was baptized he continued with philip and wondered beholding the miracles and signs which were done so philip goes down to this city he preaches about the kingdom of god and the name of jesus and the people that believed were baptized how were they baptized you go down a few verses to verse 16 it's speaking about the holy ghost it says for as yet he was fallen upon none of them only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So Philip's in Samaria baptizing people in the name of Jesus. Amen. We already read about the Ethiopian eunuch. If you'll bring that one up again, please, Daniel. Uh, Acts 8, 36 to 38. How he came to water 
And he said, what does hinder me to baptize? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you can be baptized. And he said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He stopped the chariot. They both went into the water and Philip and the eunuch and he baptized him. Now, somebody might point to that verse and say, ah, but it doesn't say how he was baptized. It doesn't say what they said. Well, the very same chapter, Philip was in Samaria baptizing a massive amount of people in the name of the Lord Jesus. If he goes down to the desert and runs into this Ethiopian eunuch and baptizes him, how's he going to baptize him? Just like he did in Samaria. God miraculously took him out of that revival and hooked him up with the, the eunuch in the desert and it was with the same gospel and the same message and the same formula. Amen. Bless the Lord. Acts chapter 10. Again, I'm, I'm moving a little bit quickly because I don't want to take all morning, but I do want to cover a reasonable amount of scripture. In Acts chapter 10, the beginning of Acts chapter 10, we read the story about an Italian soldier, Cornelius. He was a centurion and how he was a man who believed in God. He was a man who prayed to God. He was a man who gave money. They always say your belief is often connected to your wallet. Cornelius was a man that was faithful, yet he still needed more. So the Lord miraculously sent him an angel, I believe it was, and he was told to send for the apostle Peter. Peter also had an experience with the Lord. The Lord said, you don't, don't doubt this. You go down and you, you minister to this man. And so when Peter got down to Cornelius' house and he began to share the same gospel with Cornelius that he'd shared in Acts chapter 2 about Jesus Christ and how he was Lord and how he died for the sins of the people. The scripture says that right in the middle of, of Peter's little Bible study that these people began to receive the Holy Ghost speaking in other tongues. Right while he was preaching the gospel. Let me say this, if you've never been filled with the Holy Ghost and you feel like God wants to do it while I'm preaching, go right ahead. I will not be offended. And so they received the Holy Ghost. And when Peter, he turned to the others and he said, they got the Holy Ghost just like we did. And it doesn't say they said, that's fantastic, let's just keep going. But in verse 47 of Acts 10, Peter said, can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? There's a couple of things this demonstrates. The first one is you don't automatically get the Holy Ghost when you believe. There is an experience. Cornelius had faith. He believed in God. But yet there was an experience that he had in his house that Peter said, they've got it. They've got it. Which, and, and then verse 48 says, And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord, and then prayed they him to tarry certain days. He didn't say, well, you know, it'd be a really nice idea if we wrap this up and put a ribbon on it and you got baptized. It says he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Amen. Now again, it doesn't say the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, but this is the same apostle who preached in Acts chapter 2 and gave them instruction to be baptized in the name of Jesus. It's the same preacher. So we can fairly safely assume he preached the same message. Acts chapter 19, please, Daniel, and verse 1. Now we're talking with the apostle Paul. We left Peter, he's at, with Cornelius. We've come across to the apostle Paul. He's come to Ephesus. And it says in verse 1, it came to pass while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coasts, came to Ephesus and he found some disciples. 
And he said to them, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? Another statement that sort of makes, that does away with the idea of receiving it automatically when you believe. He said, since you believed. And they said unto him, we haven't even heard, what's this Holy Ghost you're talking about? And so he, he took a step back and he said, okay, well, how were you baptized? And they said, we were baptized under John's baptism, which we already discussed was a baptism of repentance, preparing for the Lord. And Paul didn't say, well, that's great. You had faith, you believe. That's the end of the show. He said, John verily baptized, verse 4, with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. So there is a consistent manner or mode or formula of how believers were baptized in the New Testament church. We see it throughout the book of Acts. And not, as I mentioned, not every single verse says in Jesus' name, but it was the same people baptizing that preached that message. Amen. Bless the Lord. There is, somebody might say, well, why doesn't it say every single time in Jesus' name? I'll tell you why. Because in the New Testament in the first century, baptism didn't exist in any other form. The only way that they baptized in the first century church was in Jesus' name. That's, that's historical fact. You can look that up in the Catholic Encyclopedia. And they will t- it will tell you that in the first century, they baptized in the name of Jesus. But then some people will point to Matthew 28 and 19, which hopefully I've got there. It says, Go ye therefore, teach all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Now, this verse of Scripture is at the end of Matthew. It's part of what we we call the Great Commission. We see a similar sort of instruction at the end of Mark and at the end of Luke. Not so much at John, because John's written a little bit differently. That's a conversation for another time. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke all contain a commission at the end. Matthew says this one. Mark says, go you into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. These signs shall follow them that believe in my name and so on and so forth. And in Luke, it talks about how repentance and remission or forgiveness of sins should be preached in, Jesus said, my name, beginning at Jerusalem. So that, they are the final conversations that Jesus had with his disciples before he ascended into heaven, and before the church was born. And so when Jesus said this, when he said, Go ye there... Oh, Matthew 28, 19, please, Daniel. Throw me a curveball there. Okay, I thought, that's not the scripture I'm reading. Go ye therefore, teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. He was speaking to his apostles. They were the audience. They were the ones that took that instruction, went into the book of Acts and baptized people in Jesus' name. That was who he was talking to. Now, either they got it right, and they they did exactly what he meant, or they got it wrong, and we have a serious problem with the rest of the Word of God. But the disciples knew exactly what that name was that Jesus was talking about. They weren't confused because they all 
went into the book of Acts and they all baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. In fact, as the church continued to grow, you will see that they emphasized the importance of the name of Jesus. The next one, please. Daniel, Acts 4 and 12. says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Now, if we, that's King James English. We break that down and put that the way we would say it today. We'd say, there's no other choice. There's only one name, and that's the name that you have to use if you want to be saved. That's how we would say that. That's, that's how... 400 years ago, the English translated it. And we don't exactly speak like they did in England 400 years ago. I'm kind of glad about that. But they emphasized the importance of the name. So, bring this together so far. Baptism, is it immersion or is it sprinkling? It's immersion. That's biblically accurate. The meaning of the word makes that accurate. The mode, the only biblical examples we have are in the name of Jesus Christ. So there's two questions we've answered from the Word of God. The second question, and, and one that's as important as, as the first part, is, is baptism a part of the new birth, or being born again, or is it a, or a part of being saved? Let's have a look at John chapter 3, verses 3 to 5. Many of you can quote some of these scriptures, and that's a good thing to be able to do. John chapter 3 tells us that the Nicodemus, who was a religious leader, very highly respected man, met with Jesus at night. He was a bit worried about his reputation, so he was having a quiet meeting under the cover of darkness. And he approaches Jesus with pleasant introductions and says, We know, Rabbi, that you're a teacher come from God because nobody can do the things that you do except God's with him. And Jesus turns to Nicodemus and he doesn't say, Well, thank you very much, that's very kind. No, he just says, Except... A man be born again. He cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, thinking like a man, said, How is it possible for a man to enter into his mother's womb a second time and be born? And so Jesus unpacks it a little bit further. And he says, Except a man be born of the water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is still struggling with all this. But also in Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, it says, not by works of righteousness which we have done, in other words, we don't save ourselves, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration. Regeneration just means being made new, being born again, and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. So there is a place for baptism right in the middle of salvation. It is a part of being born again. It is being born of the water, and then when we receive the Holy Ghost, we're born of the Spirit. They're not two births. Because what did Jesus say first? He said, you must be born again. One birth. But then when Nicodemus didn't really get that, he took it apart a little bit and made the pieces smaller. And he said, that new birth includes being born of water and being born of spirit. See, sometimes we think it's like born over here, born over there, but they're part of a whole. Repentance, baptism in Jesus' name, receiving the Holy Ghost are all part of being born again. It's the, we could talk about natural birth. There are different stages involved in a natural human birth, and if you don't have all the stages, you don't have new life. It's much the same way when it comes to being born again. Now, I do not believe, and this is sometimes where people get confused, in what's called baptismal regeneration. Somebody said, what in the world is that? I'm glad you asked. Baptismal regeneration means that we believe that it is the physical act of baptizing or of putting somebody under the water 
that takes away their sins. The physical act of immersion does not take away sins. It is the physical act of immersion by faith, with repentance, in obedience, that causes something supernatural to happen. Otherwise, and I've said this humorously before, but we could physically grab people, and if it was simply the act, we could force them underwater, whether they liked it or not, and take their sins away. But you can't do that because faith has to be involved. You have to believe. When the eunuch said, what stops me from getting baptized? Philip said, if you believe with all of your heart, you may. So faith must be, faith is what activates and releases the power of the word of God. So we do not believe in holy water or just a physical action, but it is obedience and faith in the mix that produces the promises of the word of God. Amen. Let me read on to talk about the importance of baptism. Mark chapter 16 and verse 16 says, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. That's strong language. That's one option or the other. It's not a multiple choice exam. It says you either believe and do what you're supposed to do or you don't. Now again, people will point at that verse and say, it doesn't say he that believeth not and is not baptized. But if you don't believe, you're not going to get baptized. The belief and the baptism go together. You, you don't believe, there's no point in continuing any further. So baptism is a part of being saved. Acts chapter 22 and verse 16. The Apostle Paul, sharing some of his testimony, says, And now why tarries there? Or what are you waiting for? We would say. Arise, get up, and be baptized, and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 6 and 11, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, says, And such were some of you. He's gone through this list of all these horrible sins, and just in case they thought they were holy, he said, That's where you guys came from. He said, that's where we all were. He said, such were some of you. He said, but you are washed. You are sanctified or you're separated unto God. You're justified. You're made right in the sight of God. How? In the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. One more verse. Let me take a scriptural pause. 1 Peter 3 and 21, which we referenced before. It says, the like figure or the example whereunto even baptism does also now save us. Verse after verse, the scripture lets us know that being baptized is inseparable from being born again. We also see from the word of God and the meaning of words that we have to be immersed and that it must be in the name of Jesus. That's what the scripture says. Now, I know for some of us, we all come from different backgrounds, and that's, that's great. Sometimes when we hear the Word of God, it confronts what we already thought we understood. But remember, there's a scalpel at work here. The Word of God wants to operate on our hearts, and sometimes He has to change the way that we see some things so that we can understand. It's not questioning anybody's faith or anybody's sincerity. The, the Word of God talks to us about a man whose name was Apollos, who was a powerful preacher. And he was anointed and quite eloquent and he was preaching at the level of understanding that he had. And when, I think it was Priscilla and Aquila, if I've got my Bible right, when they found him, they didn't say, oh, your faith is, is false. You're insincere. You're a hypocrite. No, it says they took him 
and they showed him the way more perfectly. They added to his understanding. Cornelius had to have his understanding added to. The Ethiopian eunuch had to have his understanding added to. The disciples at Ephesus that Paul found had to have their understanding added to. And we have to be able to say, Lord, I want to understand what the word of God says. Amen. So let's try to wrap this up and go back to Naaman. Because you're probably thinking, where in the world did he come into this story? pastor's losing his mind. And the question was, what is the difference between the sixth and seventh time? The prophet Elisha's instructions to Naaman were against Naaman's culture or what he was used to. It was things he hadn't heard before. It was things he'd never been told to do before and he didn't like it because he felt insecure. Naaman, like most of us, if we're honest, didn't like someone else telling him what he had to do. Nobody really likes being told what to do, particularly if we have a different opinion. We don't have a problem with our boss doing it because he pays us at the end of the week. But there is something in human nature that re rejects being told what to do. And Naaman was feeling a bit of that. He was obviously a very proud man. He was a, a warrior, a general, a very prestigious man. And, he, and he, wanted, he didn't want to be told to do something. He wanted the preacher to come out and go, whoosh. Your leprosy is gone. But Elisha didn't do that. Elisha told him to do something. Naaman also didn't like the choice of the Jordan River. The Jordan River was muddy. He said, there's rivers in my own country that are crystal clear and flow, and down at the end there's somebody putting in plastic bottles and making a lot of money. He said, I, I don't like the Jordan River. I prefer my own rivers. Now, I can understand a little bit. That. I've baptized people in some places across the world where I didn't like the river very much either. At a baptism in Irinjaya once where the water and the river was the color of iced coffee. And so I made sure I said, in Jesus' name, close my mouth and put them under the water. I didn't want any of that water inside of me. So I can relate to that a little bit with Naaman. But you see, Naaman's pride almost condemned him to being a leper for the rest of his life until the servant came to him. You see, we're talking about the difference between the sixth and seventh time. The number six, if you look into the sim what different numbers represent throughout Scripture, and numbers have a place. And I, I, I think you can get a little bit off into unstable ground of trying to find a meaning for every number in the Bible. But there's obviously some things that are significant about numbers. There were 12 tribes of Israel. There were 12 apostles. The, Jesus, the, the Lord made the earth in seven days. Seven figures very prominently throughout the Old Testament. The number six is often considered to be the number of man. Man was created on the sixth day. And often in that focus, when we look at the number six, and I'm not building a, a doctrine on this, so don't think I'm losing my brain, but it's about man being the focus. It's about man being in charge of himself. Whereas seven is often considered to be the number of God or the number of completion. It was on the seventh day of creation that God rested. The focus went off man and went on to God on the seventh day. It was in, in the Old Testament, if you were a Hebrew... And another Hebrew, you, you bought another Hebrew as a slave. It probably had a debt problem or something had happened. 
and that, that other Hebrew became your slave, you were able to keep them for six years and then they had to be released on the seventh year. There's a lot of things that are symbolic in that. Amen. The seventh day in the Old Testament particularly was God's people were commanded to rest. It acknowledged God's provision that he would take care of things on that seventh day. And it gave them time to turn their minds towards him. So what made the seventh time that Naaman dipped himself in the Jordan River different from the sixth time was that he was completely surrendering his own will and fully obeying the instruction of God. When he got down into that dirty river, muttering under his breath, why am I doing this for? Humbled himself. All of his servants standing on the riverbank watching their master. And he went down once, took a breath, didn't want to drink that horrible muddy Jordan River. Came up, still a leper. Second time, still a leper. Third time, still a leper. You know, he could have easily said, this is ridiculous. I'm humiliating myself in front of my men. So that's it. Give me a towel. We're getting out of here. We're going home. But because he knew he couldn't heal his own disease, he went ahead and obeyed fully the instruction that came from the preacher and indirectly from God. It went against his culture. It went against his religious tradition. It went against his pride. And it went against his personal preferences. And when he fully obeyed seven times, not six and not five, he was washed completely clean and his skin was like a little child. And as people, if we are willing to put aside tradition, to put aside pride, to put aside culture and, to be, and our personal preferences and to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ... As the scripture says, the prophet in the Old Testament said this. He said, come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. How does that happen? When I obey the word of God. When I take my culture and move it out of the way, when I take my religious tradition and move it out of the way, my pride, my personal preferences, the way we've always done things, and I do it seven times when I completely obey the Word of God. I go from having a disease that I could not take away to being born again, washed in His blood, and clean. And the, the Bible says that if any man is in Christ... He is a new creature. The old things are passed away. Behold, all things are made new. Amen. Now I have heard, excuse me, but I have heard a lot of reasons or a lot of excuses over the years why people don't want to be baptized in Jesus' name. And they almost always come under one of those categories. Culture, tradition, pride, that's a biggie. And personal preference. But if I could stand, if I'm allowed to today, in the place of Naaman's servant, and if you've never been baptized in Jesus' name, I want to ask you the same question. What do you have to lose? What have you got to lose? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's stand together this morning.